Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, the holiday season is a time to share some cheer with friends. And so we're welcoming three returning guests. One who's a Lapan Apache scientist with a new young adult novel. This was what most people think of at Thanksgiving week. But this was also a week when sacred land in Presidio, Texas was returned to our tribe. And another who grew up in Hawaii before moving to Arizona. She has a forthcoming collection of prize-winning poetry. All these whales can hear this guy. He's not deaf. He's just odd. But first... We had a chance to catch up with the folks at the University of Arizona Poetry Center in Tucson. Sarah Kortemeyer is library director there, and we began a recent discussion by talking about the center's extensive collections of contemporary poetry. The Poetry Center has about 80,000 materials related to contemporary poetry in its stacks. That includes books, which are the majority of the collection at about 55,000 items. Uh, But it also includes photographs of poets who have come to visit us over the years, It includes recordings of poets who have come to read at the Poetry Center since the 60s. And it includes things like broadsides, which are uh, printed poems on a single sheet of paper, often printed really beautifully with a lot of uh, fine press techniques. Uh, So the Poetry Center is an open stack collection, which means that you can just walk in and browse the vast majority of our holdings in our big uh, living room-like space on the ground floor. There's no need for you to ask for access to most of our titles. You just kind of walk in, browse, discover things you like, uh, read a little bit here, read a little bit there, make yourself real comfortable and settle in for the afternoon. You mentioned that, you know, dates back to the 60s, of course, not in that particular building. And what I have to say is I have had the fortune to travel to several places around the world, and I sincerely mean this. The Poetry Center remains among one of my favorite of all time. I mean, I kind of liken it to the Sydney Opera House in Australia, except obviously for the written word. Wow. Thank you so much for saying that. That's so kind. We are just incredibly fortunate to have a poetry library like this in, in the Southwest in general, uh, but particularly here in Arizona. We're really the, one of the very few freestanding poetry libraries in North America. There are only a few, of, a few of them scattered around, and a lot of them are in major urban centers like Chicago or San Francisco. Um, so it's really, it's really wonderful to have Uh, poetry so well represented here in the Southwest. I think it's both a major asset for our community and also like a real testament to the strength of the literary community here. Yeah, absolutely. One that I did not know about until I moved to Arizona over four years (laughs) ago, quite honestly. I had to look back through our archive because when we first caught up with you, Sarah, it was in April for our National Poetry Month series of podcasts. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, as you alluded to at the time, the center was closed, but you were staying in touch with patrons and students and visitors virtually and through a variety of ways like the Ask a Librarian option. Mm -hmm. And then you also partnered with Kent State University in Ohio for Dear Vaccine, uh, the global vaccine poem that people you know, the idea was like they could contribute to it while they were waiting to get vaccinated. What were the results of that effort? How did that turn out? It turned out really kind of beyond our wildest dreams. It was just wonderful to hear what people had to say. Uh, we're actually bringing out an anthology uh, related to the Deer Vaccine oh, Project. Nice. I believe it's scheduled to be out next spring um, from uh, Kent State University. 
people had so much to say to the vaccine and they, they said it so beautifully. I think the anthology is going to include contributions from like 118 countries. People wrote in from all over the place. I had relatives who, who wrote in once they heard about it. They were really excited. Uh, I think that project really tapped a deep need in people to connect with one another after this long season of isolating and sheltering in place. And it's just been remarkable to see how what, what came out of it. Uh, we could not be more thrilled with the progress of that project. So moving forward, you know, you mentioned connections. And of course, mm-hmm. that was difficult to do, obviously, in person. More things are open now. The Poetry Center is open. People still have some reservations, I think. I mean, yeah. you know, we hear reports of breakthrough infections, no matter how cautious we may be. How are you working to connect people, maybe continuing the virtual offerings that you had great experience with, but also in person in the near future? That's a great question. So what we're doing is trying to combine the best of both in person and online, particularly with our reading series events, uh, which we now have the capability to live stream. That was a project we undertook while we were closed. Uh, And so we're able to live stream those recordings so that people who um, cannot join us in person or simply don't feel comfortable joining us in person can choose to tune in online. We are, of course, still recording all of our reading series events and we're um, uploading those to VOCA, our online audio video archive. And this last month, we just received a grant from the Mellon Foundation to caption the entire historical archive of VOCA, which is going to really open that archive, I think, in ways that it had not been opened before. And so we're just really thrilled about the opportunity to combine digital connection with in-person experiences. I'm glad you mentioned that, Clint. It was a $135,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation that's going to be used to create these captions. Could you describe what VOCA is and what this Mm -hmm. will mean exactly for you? Yeah, VOCA is uh, an online archive. It contains all of the digitized recordings from our reading series, and the reading series started in the early 1960s. So we have all of these physical recordings still on site. We have everything from reel-to-reel tapes to audio cassettes to VHS stuff. Uh, And in the early 2000s, we started digitizing that collection to preserve it because they were on somewhat fragile physical media, and those recordings were degrading at different rates. And so in order to save them, we digitized them. And then as long as we were digitizing, we figured, well, (laughs) let's make them available online. Let's make them really accessible. So that's what VOCA is. VOCA is the website that houses all of those historical recordings and new recordings going forward. So we're we're adding to that archive at about mm, 10 to 20 recordings a year. It's got over a thousand recordings on it right now. Um, And as I said, it goes back to the early 1960s. So you get a really wonderful record through VOCA of poets who have come through Tucson to read. Many of them read several times over the decades. You can really hear how they grew as performers as well as how the poetry grew. And so we've been very excited to uh, be able to complete that digitization project. But now that it's all digitized and kind of up and running, we're interested in making it accessible in new ways. So captions are really, really important for that because captions uh, help users with disabilities. They also help users who are viewing a video in very noisy or very public environments, right? They help users whose first language is not English. And they also open up the archive to really interesting textual analysis that would not have been possible before. So we're just really thrilled to be able to do this. It's a project that I have been thinking about for years, and it's just amazing to be able to move forward with it. Well, Sarah Kortemeyer is Library Director at University of Arizona Poetry Center in Tucson on the campus. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back to Word and talking to us about the HAPS at the Poetry Center. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. You can find out a bit more info about the Poetry Center at the University of Arizona by going to our website, Word. 
www.kjzz.org. Coming up after the break, a Lapan Apache scientist has a new young adult novel. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Think about this. Every day you count on KJZZ to educate, surprise, and inspire you. Many of our listeners feel the same. Support the service that offers you so much and help us reach the goal of 1,500 new KJZZ members before the end of the year. Become a member at KJZZ.org. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Dr. Darcy Little Badger is Lapan Apache, an oceanographer, earth scientist, and an author of now two young adult novels. Her first, Alatsaway, was released in 2020, and she's followed it up with the October release of A Snake Falls to Earth. Now I'm actually a full-time writer. I had to make that choice recently because I just couldn't juggle the science and the writing careers full-time, you know, at the same time. Uh, But I do stay active in terms of my science work by being an advisor for the tribe. My official title is the advisor to the tribe geology, uh, but really I'll, I'll advise on anything that I can related to my expertise. In terms of my writing career, my second book just came out. It's called A Snake Falls to Earth, and it follows my first book, Alatsaway. And they're both fantasy novels uh, for a young adult audience that take place in, in worlds very similar to ours with teen characters who, who go on uh, pretty magical adventures. <laughs> I'm wondering what it was like for you to juggle back and forth between the writing for science and the writing for fiction, because obviously these are sort of diametrically opposed. I find that even when I'm writing fantasy, because I do write both science fiction and fantasy and even some horror, um, but even my fantasy works tend to be infiltrated by this background I have in earth sciences. And really, I, I think it's because I just I just find the world so inspiring and beautiful and interesting that I can't think of writing something that is completely disconnected from that interest. And sometimes this happens in weird ways. Like I've, I've mentioned before that in Alatsaway, there's two types of monsters living in uh, Ellie's version of the U.S. There's the quote unquote endemic monsters or the monsters that have been here and, and are natural to this continent. And then there are what are called invasive monsters that have been brought over uh, from a different continent and they're pushing out these you know, endemic monster species. And uh, what I realized is that was inspired by my my role as an intern studying invasive and endemic plants in the United States. But yeah, what I found is that as opposed to getting in the way of my creative side, my scientific background has actually helped boost it um, because I do find a lot of inspiration in, in the natural world around and in the things that I research and the papers that I read. As this episode airs in December now, many recently, of course, just celebrated Thanksgiving. I think a lot of people think of it as the quintessential American holiday. Some, of course, do not celebrate it at all. Some maybe celebrate it as Indigenous Rights Day. What's your perspective on the holiday? 
Well, I could tell you what personally I do is just um, this is a time when I, I spend time with my family. And something actually really cool happened. This was what most people think of at Thanksgiving week. But this was also a week when sacred land in Presidio, Texas, was blessed by our tribe because it was actually returned to our tribe. Um, this is a cemetery, a burial ground of Lipan people. And we've been fighting along with many members of the community there, many of whom are tribe members, to be able to reclaim this land so that we could take care of it. And uh, it just, I, I never expected it to happen, but it did. And, and it's just this instance when, this moment when we have reclaimed something that is so important to us, both culturally in terms of our history uh, and our ancestors, uh, but also the future of our people, because this is land that hopefully we will be able to protect it into the future and also uh, maybe bring uh, remains to rest in it. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I guess I don't technically celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving, but this week there was a lot to be grateful for. And a lot of that, I think, is because there's growing support. People are recognizing that Indigenous peoples are, are still here. And one thing that was really touching to me is uh, in this burial ground, there are these cairns, these, these mounds of, of little rocks where people were laid to rest. And over time, as this burial site was uh, deteriorating, people were taking rocks from it. But this week, actually, many members of the community who realized that they had rocks and that these rocks were important, they actually returned it to the burial site. And we were able to put those you know, back where our ancestors lay. So <laughs> I, I guess my perspective is that I don't personally celebrate Thanksgiving, but I do think that it's important just for people to have a time, whenever that may be, where they can be with their families and be grateful for things. And, and this week, it was a, a week that I was especially grateful for. Your new young adult novel is called A Snake Falls to Earth on the Heels of Alatsaway. Language, of course, is crucial to the plot of this story. And one of the things that I've noticed um, is an attempt by many indigenous peoples to reclaim the words of their ancestors. And even, yeah. even for those living in various diasporas spread across the world, trying to find some kind of connection uh, just to indigenous places from which they have been displaced, how do those themes play out in A Snake Falls to Earth? Oh, the language is actually especially important to this book. In fact, it's told through two perspectives. And one of those perspectives is a Lipan teenager named Nina. And she lives in the very near future version of the world. And she's told this story by her great-great-grandmother in the Lipan language. Uh, and she doesn't speak Lipan fluently. So at first, she doesn't understand what this story means. But it's her goal to kind of uncover that meaning because she senses, even then, without having any understanding of what the words mean, that it's important. And in, in fact, it turns out that this story reveals a lot about Nina's family and the way that they're going to survive. And that was actually based on a, a very personal experience of mine. Uh, of my, my great-great-grandfather, actually, uh, would say something in the morning. Uh, and it's this, this almost this prayer that he would say. And it was in Lipan. And through the oral tradition, uh, it was passed down through my family line. Over time, some of those words, we lost the meaning of them. So recently, we were able to piece together 
what they actually meant. And now that prayer has been restored. And that's because it's really cool just that the way of passing things down orally, the way that words are pronounced is preserved so beautifully um, that we were able to match them up. And I wanted to write a book that honored that sense of reclaiming an important part of yourself and your family and your cultures and, and the work that goes into that, especially when it comes to a language like ours, which for the longest time, it was very difficult to speak that in public because um, the Lipan people, you know, we we were, uh, people were out to get us uh, right. in Texas uh, without getting too too much into that. It was, it was difficult to maintain our culture and our voices, but we succeeded in terms of that prayer. And also right now we're working to, reclaim the language and fill in the holes uh, with our with our tribal linguists. And, and I have a lot of hope for that project. It's a great lesson about perseverance, I think. And maybe that is a piece of why this might work for young adults. I mean, it's hard to be a young adult these days. Not that it hasn't been in the past, but I think especially so right now. Yeah, there, there's, uh, in, in the book in particular, I also kind of touch upon things like climate anxiety, because the younger generations, they are born into this world where we have already, we're feeling the impacts of climate change, and potentially it could get a lot worse. And I, I just wanted to to write a book that recognized that young people are dealing with a lot, and, and sometimes these are issues that have implications for at a global level. That's quite serious. But in all my books, I, I do also try to emphasize the hope that we must carry with us that our future can be the best version possible if, if we fight for it. But yeah, it is as a young adult writer, that's also a time in, in people's lives when they're starting to take on a lot of responsibilities that are very adult, you know, that they have one foot in, in the, the realm of childhood, but they're also stepping into this new world of greater independence and, and new experiences and all the difficulties that that can bring. So I do uh, enjoy writing from that perspective, just because the complexity of those stories is interesting. And also hopefully by writing these stories, I can help young readers maybe find a sense of solace. Dr. Darcy Little Badger, it's always nice to catch up with folks. We'll call them friends who come back to the show and we consider you <laughs> one. Thank you so much for coming back to Word. Oh, no, thank you for the invitation. It's great to talk to you again. You can find out a bit more info about Dr. Darcy Little Badger and her new book, A Snake Falls to Earth, by going to our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up after the break, a Valley Poet has a forthcoming collection that won the 2021 Washington Prize. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You're a texting, emailing, tweeting extraordinaire. You and your cell phone are inseparable. It's the first thing you grab in the morning and the last thing you see before bed. Tap your screen and download the KJZZ mobile app. You can listen live and multitask. Tap the KJZZ app and stay connected. It's at your app store. 
Did you know that KJZZ's Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization? Your Arizona State tax credit could support high school students in learning digital media and journalism skills. More information at taxcredit.spot127.org. These days, making connections takes just a few taps. If you want to share something that you think KJZZ should know, fill us in. You can find all the ways to send in a tip. Just go to tips.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Sharon Suzuki Martinez grew up in Hawaii. A Ph.D. graduate of English from the U of A, she currently lives with her husband in Tempe. Her new collection of poetry is The Loneliest Whale Blues, which won the 2021 Washington Prize. It's been over a year and a half since I've caught up with her, and I was curious how the ongoing pandemic has affected her writing. I think it's, interestingly, for introverts like me, a good time. It allowed me to be less distracted by the outside world and to go inward and to, well, I've, I've got more in touch with this character, The Loneliest Whale. Um, that's that's at the center of my book. Um, I don't know if, if you realize that there's a documentary that was produced this year by Leonardo DiCaprio called The Loneliest Whale on the search for 52. And it's about a real whale that researchers discovered in the Pacific that has this 52 hertz tone of voice that um, is, is unusually high pitched so that it, it's unique and it hasn't been able to communicate with other whales or other whales won't talk to it. And so this this feeling of, of loneliness and being misunderstood, but also give, being given a lot of space um, to, to be yourself, I guess is, is what I, I really felt strongly about for this whale and for this time of being able to go inward. It's alarming when I, I see on the internet and TV about how things have fallen apart in many ways, but um, I, I can also see things coming together in different ways and nature bouncing back in many ways. Like I just noticed that there was a fear of the monarch butterflies dying out, and then they, they really came back in force very recently. I see the world changing and the pandemic being a big part of this change. It's changing people, it's changing nature, it's changing our culture. It's been a really good opportunity, I guess, to reflect and write during this time. Yeah, and I wonder the positive changes that you're kind of alluding to, how long they might last. You know, you specifically mentioned the monarch butterfly, and I can remember all kinds of stories of different animals returning to habitats which they had not been in for a long time. This collection, again, The Loneliest Whale Blues, were all of these poems written during the course of the last year or so? I've been working on this collection actually for um, almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Since the publication of my, my first book during the pandemic, it's kind of come together. I've, I've come to a new understanding of what I've been working on. I'm always interested in people's process behind deciding, okay, this is what I'm going to put into my manuscript. Interestingly, have gone through 52 versions of this 
manuscript. (laughs) And so, yeah, there've been some versions where I just read my manuscript online and and I, I made decisions there, you know, changing out poems, adding poems. But um, throughout the process, there has been times where I, I just had to look look at everything over again by putting it all on the floor and making arrangements. Yeah, I think sometimes when you read your own poems out loud, mm-hmm. even if it's not in front of an audience, for instance, you just decide, oh, I just don't like the way that phrase fits in there. Or maybe I could just make one word choice change. Mm-hmm. And that explodes the poem into multiple meanings where previously maybe it was a little, I don't know, too obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sure, you know, what you were going for in in each of these poems. But I I did want to read something back to you, Sharon, which uh, this is from Andrea Carter Brown, the editor of the Washington Prize series. And Andrea described your collection in part in the following manner. From the smallest cells to the largest creatures... These poems mix present and past, ancient mythology and popular culture, the real and the imaginary, individual and communal, on a planet under existential threat. And I'm curious how your Okinawan Japanese heritage and your time living in Hawaii and now living on the ancestral lands of the Akamela Odom people here in Tempe play into what Brown described in that short passage that I just read. That's actually a difficult question. It's my identity is just, I guess I I could say that I have a, a unique perspective, I guess, from a lot of people growing up on an, in an island in the Pacific and, and moving to someplace that's completely different in climate right. and totally different cultures. I mean, it's a choice I made deliberately. Um, and I, I feel like there's a connection between the two. And I think I, I go over it in my book a bit. That's interesting because I remember last time we talked, mm-hmm. you described the Phoenix Basin as sort of a ghost ocean. And mm-hmm. I thought that was just one of the most beautiful descriptions I have ever heard of this region. I have had the great fortune to travel many places around the world and to experience many differences in, in cultures. And... What I have noticed, certainly when I lived on the island of Guam in the Pacific, was the reverence for nature that you don't get everywhere, but I think exists for sure here in Arizona in numerous ways. I mean, certainly the environment is a concern for folks with respect to water, obviously, Mm -hmm. and the overuse of it and where we're going in the future with that. I wonder if you happen to have a poem handy and if, if you wanted to take us out with a poem of your own, either one from this upcoming release that's coming out in the spring or another one that you might favor. Well, I have this one, my title poem, The Loneliest Whale Blues. And um, it begins with a quote from a whale researcher from Cornell. All these whales can hear this guy. He's not deaf. He's just odd. For over 20 years, he has called out and gone unanswered. The unknown whale with the 52 hertz pitch, a falsetto at a base conference. To be unique among the Japanese means to be alone. A subarashi freak, a grand outcast, a curious whale wandering the bluest wilderness. Maybe the whale needs space 
so deliberately acts repulsive. Maybe he's wailing ancient stick tunes or screeching out to all, Konnichiwa, you sick But possibly the whale sings because of the sun. He watches her swim solitary across the long days. One day she will bring a white hot rhythm as all the great soulmates do. Oh, thank you so much for reading that. That's beautiful. And I love the interplay between common language and words that obviously readers would need to look up. And I'm assuming there's a conscious decision for you to make that choice. Mm -hmm. I do want readers to look more into things that, that are unknown to them. This book has a bunch of notes in the back because my my publisher did want me to make it a little easier for people, you know, to, to understand a, a lot of these references that are probably going to be new. And so I didn't expect to be able to do that. So that there, there are a bunch of references and, and links to websites and all. Sharon Suzuki Martinez is author of the latest book of poems entitled The Loneliest Whale Blues, and it'll be out in spring of next year. Sharon, thank you for coming back to Word and catching us up on your life and also your work. Please stay safe. Thank you. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. This, you're the first uh, person I've been able to talk about this book to. Well, we appreciate you breaking that news, so to speak, on a podcast about literature. Thanks again, Sharon. Take care. Thank you. You too. You can find out a bit more info about Sharon Suzuki Martinez and her work on our website, word.kjzz.org. If you're already a sustaining member of KJZZ, we thank you very much. But in the meantime, if you're not, just a reminder that it's our end-of-year campaign. Become a member and help us reach our 1,500 new member goal. That will unlock $30,000 of matching funds that have been generously donated by Leadership Society members. Just go to kjzz.org and click on the Donate tab for more information, and we thank you so much. I'm Tom Maxidon, and we're back for the final episode of the season late this month. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.